Welcome to the Take the Cake podcast. I am your host, Kate Noel, and I am so happy you're here. My mission is to inspire you to be the best version of yourself by truly honoring what your mind, body, and soul want and need. Here, we talk about everything and anything, wellness, recovery, lifestyle stuff, lots more. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Take the Cake podcast. I'm so excited to share my interview with Samantha, aka Mindfulness Mommy on Instagram with you today. She is so special and I love following her ever since I started following her. I think last year I really wanted to have her on the show because she is somebody I learn from every time I see a post from her and a story from her. Um, So We talk about her experience with being strict vegan um, in college and how her sort of um, disordered relationship with food was stemmed from trauma in her life. And um, we also talk about her experience with therapy and um, she talks about somatic therapy and transpersonal therapy, which are really different forms of therapy that I don't think a lot of people know about. So it was really interesting to hear about her experience with that. And we talk about uh, meditation and how she started meditating and how much it changed her life. And she gives some practical tips to start meditating. If you're somebody who is like, no thanks, I've tried it. And I just appreciate her outlook on self-care and mindfulness because it's not so daunting. It's a very realistic and inclusive and anybody can implement some of the things that she recommends. Um, And yeah, I just really loved talking to her. It was a really lovely chat. And so I hope that you enjoy the show. Hi, Samantha. Thank you so much for being here. I am really excited to get to know you. We're like Instagram friends. I mean, at least I feel like we are. And I have loved following you and meditating with you. And I'm really excited to have you on the show. So I would love if you just tell me and my audience a little bit more about you, where you live and what you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's also a pleasure to actually get to speak to you um, because I definitely do feel like we're Instagram friends too. So that's real. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I So I currently live in London, uh, moved here during the pandemic. So this is a huge shift for me, but I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. And I work for a law firm right now. Um, But it's funny, I I try to lead with that now because I feel like I often leave it out. A lot of people don't know that I actually work at a law firm and I just graduated from law school, I guess, almost a year ago at this point. Wow, that's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But my passion um, and, you know, what most people, at least on Instagram, know me from is really in the mindfulness space. Um, So mindful movement, meditation, breath work. And it's just a passion of mine because it's a tool that I've used throughout my life. And it's really, I think, gotten me to places that I might not have gotten spiritually, emotionally, physically even. Who knows if I'd be in London right now had I not fallen into um, mindfulness as a practice, as a lifestyle when I was in college. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. Uh, Mindfulness Mommy is is my IG name for those Mm -hmm. who are wondering. I love your Instagram. I have a few questions, if you don't mind sharing. 
why did you move to London? That's a great question that actually a lot of people ask me, obviously, mm-hmm. over here, too. Um, I think the most genuine answer, and let me move away from my work computer as we speak. Um, the most genuine answer to that question is I'm sort of an explorer and a free spirit. And um, all my life, for some reason, I've just imagined like traveling the world, living in different places, even though no one in my family had ever done it. It just seemed like something that I wanted to do and I could easily see myself doing. So um, I think the ironic part is I was born and raised in Atlanta, went to high school and even college there. So I didn't really leave. I mean, I had traveled. I was privileged enough to travel but I didn't really leave until law school. Um, and I think that that's so ironic because here I am now just living in a different country and I can see myself living abroad you know, for the rest of my life, whether it's traveling to different countries and doing stints there. Um, but yeah, I think that's the number one reason. I'm just free-spirited and I feel like the world has so much to offer us. Why would I stay in one place? You know, That's cool. I love that you have yeah. that sort of clarity in your life from such a young age, like I really admire that because I have no idea where I'm going to be at in for the rest of my life. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I live in LA and I love it, but my family mm-hmm. is in the Midwest and then I have other family in Nashville, Tennessee, and mm-hmm. I really like Oregon, but I also kind of want to like be abroad too. So I, yeah. I love that you just know that and you're cool with that. You're just like, I'll yeah. end up where I end up and I'll just take life one day at a time. That's really cool. So my other question is how come you decided to become a lawyer? (laughs) That's another, another wonderful question. And I ask myself that every day now. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that's something that actually I was not expecting. So a lot of people who go to law school kind of, you know, you have the classic law student who always knew that they wanted to be an attorney. That was not me. So I, I studied anthropology and Middle Eastern studies in undergrad. And I was really into, um, yeah, like cultural studies. So my focus in anthropology was on cultures. I loved that, the study of culture and of humanity. And I had this idea that I was going to get a PhD in anthropology, actually. And I um, ended up doing, so I guess I, I did kind of live because I did live in Morocco for a year after college. I did a grant um, with the State Department called a Fulbright grant. And I lived in Morocco. I taught at a university there. And I really just had the opportunity to kind of sink my teeth into what maybe academia might look like, what anthropology, cultural studies might look like, because I also did an academic research project. And I loved it. I mean, I absolutely loved it. Um, But, you know, destiny and fate kind of gets in the way. And I ended up meeting a Harvard law professor while I was over there. And she sort of became a mentor to me. And opened my eyes to what getting a JD, which is a a law degree, would look like. And I just, you know, I kind of looked at the opportunity and again, free-spirited thought, you know what, maybe I should try this. It seems like it might offer me some different opportunities. And and what I loved about the JD, so it was very flexible. So it's not like an anthropology PhD where essentially once I were to do that and dedicate myself seven years to doing that, you know, I would technically really have one option go into academia perhaps you know maybe find some other things but those would be quite difficult 
Whereas the JD gave me the option if I wanted to go into academia one day, I could. Uh, I could also do some practical work and become an attorney. I could get into business. You can do a lot of things with the JD. So again, I think it just aligned with my free-spirited um, personality. And I am an academic at heart, but I think I did want to find something practical to do for a little bit as well. <laughs> and like actually, mm-hmm. you know, have a, a career for a little bit and and kind of stabilize myself in that way because I am so free spirited Mm -hmm. so yeah very unconventional way to make your way to Yale law school like I said because a lot of people kind of knew that that's what they wanted to do and then somehow I just fell into it yeah I'm wondering how many people you met at well maybe you had a lot of online school so you didn't get to meet people as much but Mm -hmm. Um, how many people you met that were like you who were just like, this just destiny and fate, this just happened. And they weren't like born to be in law or whatever. Very rare, actually. Mm -hmm. And and Yale's pretty small compared to some of its peer schools. And we did, I was there in person for two and a half years. And then it was, it was the second semester of my final year when COVID struck. So most of my career there was in person and yeah I think it was pretty rare to find very free-spirited people who just sort of found their way there like I said a lot of people I knew just knew that that's what they wanted to do Mm -hmm. Um, and I wasn't necessarily me but I did know that I was in the right place I didn't doubt that law was you know a good route for me I just didn't necessarily expect to get there yeah I love that yeah my brother-in-law he is about to go to law school. So um, he's been, I've been very interested in it because of him. Cause like every mm-hmm. time we go and hang out with them, they, they were like the only people we saw <laughs> during like lockdown. So we yeah. saw them a lot. Every single holiday was like the same, but um, <laughs> w- went over there to their place. And I would just like have him quiz me. Like I didn't even study, but mm-hmm. I would have him like quiz me on LSAT practice questions. And I'm oh like, this is God. fun. Like, this is kind of <laughs> fun. I don't know. It just feels kind of empowering to like ultimately know what's right, or at least in law terms, what's right. Yeah. Yes, for sure. And then of course you go to law school and then you end up learning that most, there are no, you know, black and white answers to most legal questions. And then you end up just getting confused all over again. But yeah, I think that's also the the most interesting part about law that to me is that, Mm -hmm. you know, we oftentimes think of it as this black and white field, because in some ways it, I think in some ways it serves a purpose as like presenting as such, but actually like when you get into the weeds of it, and this might be because I went to Yale Law, which is very academic-y and, you know, uh, philosophy-based, but when you get into the weeds of it, there really is no black and white. Um, And it's a lot more nuanced than you would think, a lot more contextual. And I think that's what I love the most about studying law, Mm -hmm. because it kind of reveals, I think when you apply that realistic outlook to the law, it reveals a lot more about, again, society and sort of things that we Uh, presume as true aren't necessarily always true um more nuanced I mean I do agree I think that reflects on your Instagram um because Mm -hmm. that's like one of the reasons I love following you is because I feel Mm -hmm. like you are you attract people like me or just people in general who Mm -hmm. really appreciate people who can be truthful and confrontational Mm -hmm. but do it in a way that's like clearly this person you really cares about humanity and like mm. life you know what I mean and yeah. 
um, like my husband's the same way. I feel like he's so confrontational and honest that it, like I grew up with rose colored glasses, like very much mm-hmm. not in that world, which mm-hmm. I think was one of the reasons why I really struggled as long as I did with eating and mm-hmm. stuff. But like, yeah. he's just so honest. And at first I'm like, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's, it's, it's probably my privilege. I, I mean, I'm just like, mm-hmm. Oh, like I can't deal with that. That's so, that's so hard for me to hear. But then yeah. as I've evolved and learned, okay, that's, that's like true love. That's like real mm-hmm. human exactly. connection. So I love that about mm-hmm. your Instagram. I think it's mm-hmm. like a perfect example of that. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Particularly because that's, I think one of the hardest parts about social media is the authenticity. Right. And I think even for me, I struggled with putting my authentic self forward because one that's extremely vulnerable (laughs) that's a hard thing to do and two I just think it's it's not necessarily always possible right because we're always good you're never going to see the true authentic person on a social media page but I think I'm doing my best so it really yeah it means a lot to hear that you can see that and that you can connect with it because that's essentially if I can't do that then I don't want to be online anymore if you know what I I'm know like, I know like, this is, like this is all I want to do is just try my best to still connect because the beauty of social media is to be able to connect but if we're not connecting authentically then what is the purpose it's like point? what are we doing <laughs> you know yes. just you know multiple hours of my day glued to my phone like yes like, <laughs> yeah there's yeah. got to be something good in there or yeah, I'm wasting exactly. my time and it's mm-hmm. yeah okay so Another thing I love about your Instagram is your vulnerability with your, you know, body acceptance journey and just Mm -hmm. being, um, being very real with how you take care of yourself, self-care. Um, and Mm -hmm. while we're on the topic of college, we move kind of straight away, but you told me that you had some struggles with food and your body in college. Mm -hmm. So tell me Mm -hmm. about that. Yes. Yes. So in college I and I actually can't remember exactly when it might have been right before college I became very strict vegan and actually in high school throughout high school I was vegetarian so I don't and I come from a family (laughs) where these are very foreign concepts so like my (laughs) um yeah like my dad's family black American got some Caribbean there too and it's just vegan vegetarianism is absolutely like foreign to my family mm-hmm. on that side and then my mom's side uh Irish American not at all again interested in <laughs> whatever these <laughs> vegan vegetarian lifestyles are very confused when it came to my journey so already I think I again I don't really know where it came from but um I just decided to stop eating meat when I was in high school and I have always been an athlete. So, I mean, I played sports in high school. I was very serious about it. And I wonder if it was related to that or if it was just the spaces that I was in. I went to a private high school and I think you could notice uh, class differences really easily in that space and like the food that you ate. And there were a lot of, of course, wealthy 
people um, at my school whose parents were on the health kick very early, right? And so they all had really cool, healthy looking snacks. And then I just had a pretty simple like PB&J or like a tuna fish sandwich. And I think those kind of things, and I acknowledge as well that I didn't come, I don't come from a poor background, um, definitely middle-class, but still seeing that disparity in experience was really odd to me. And I think it, it played a role in sort of how I saw, saw myself and you know, seeing what my family would eat compared to what people would eat when I went over to their houses and like the, all the volleyball girls with their moms would prepare for them, mm-hmm. right? Very different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think it did start probably in high school. Um, and then in college, when I had my own freedom to sort of you know, use my meal plan and eat what I wanted, I think I just kind of took it to the extreme and was like, okay, well, you know, we didn't really have like this health kick in my family. And I want to, you know, like, I want to have control over what I eat now and I want to be healthy. And it was, it was, came from this, like, not even necessarily quote unquote diet culture, but I think like the health, health obsessed culture, which of course they go hand in hand. Um, But I kind of got into this pattern of extreme restriction when it came to what I ate, not necessarily how much I ate. I was very, very active. So I kind of needed a lot of calories, but, um, I was so obsessed with what I ate. I literally remember, (laughs) I remember I would like read every label and Mm -hmm. um, if it had anything unnatural in it, like I had this visceral reaction in my body. Like I Mm -hmm. could, I would look at it and be like, there's no way I can put this in my body. Mm -hmm. Um, And that lasted for years. And I mean, it was, when I look back at it, I honestly don't even know how I did it, but I, I thought that it was helping me. Um, when I look back, I really believed that having this control and it really was about control actually. Um, now that I've processed it, having control over my life in this way, it made me feel as though I was, you know, I guess in power, (laughs) um, that I, that I was able to direct, Uh, my life more and a lot of that stems obviously from trauma so it and and I think what you probably know and uh, having read some of your your thoughts and looked at some of your blogs you know a lot of eating is deeper than just Mm -hmm. your meal and what you look at when you see your body right a lot of the times um, the body holds trauma and I think I was dealing with a very toxic uh, and, and abusive relationship that started in high school and ended in college. And I think this like vegan lifestyle was a way for me to have control over my life on a deeper level, um, rather than just having control over what I ate in comparison to, you know, my family. I think it was really just me wanting to have control over my life period. And it was one facet of my life where I felt like I could be strict and consistent and feel again like I could direct my life Mm -hmm. yeah I really thank you for sharing that I really relate to you actually because I guess maybe it was like the time like 2010 11 12 I'm not really sure exactly when it was but like that the veganism the the raw veganism the whatever Mm -hmm. all those high carb, low fat diet stuff that was yeah. like really popular. And mm-hmm. it was like, almost like the thing to do. And it kind of like, yeah. I, I relate to in that I was vegan. I was only vegan for like six months, mm-hmm. but it was still like, 
you know, in my mind all the time. And I was obviously yeah. still doing other eating disorder behaviors that were yeah. not, not good. So yeah, I mean, it's all about control. And I also was in a toxic relationship in high school. Mm-hmm. And I remember confiding with my boyfriend at the time about my struggles. And he just, mm-hmm. you know, yelled at me and was like, what are mm-hmm. you doing? Stop counting calories, stop looking at labels. And mm-hmm. like, I don't know, having a strict diet gave me like autonomy over my life. Like exactly. it's like something that I had to do to mm-hmm. feel like I had something to live for in a way, mm-hmm. which sounds so dramatic. It's like, mm-hmm. and it is like when I was in that yeah. mindset, it was so dramatic. Like you said, exactly. it's so black and white. You're like, mm-hmm. this is what I have to do. Um, mm-hmm. And then when you're looking back, like you said, now I look back, I'm like, oh my gosh, I wasted so much of my time and energy doing something that was so, I mean, ultimately wasn't good for me, but it's just like yeah. even more so it's just the time and energy I spent on it. And like the <laughs> amount of, yes. I don't know, whatever it just, it was just took over my, my life. So tell me about your experience, um, overcoming that, you know, what, what had to happen for you to see, to come on the other side and see how toxic that was for you. You know what it was? And I vividly remember a moment. Um, and it was, I used to do a lot of volunteer work and community work in one of the refugee communities outside of Atlanta called Clarkston. And so I did a lot of tutoring there, like uh, helped people get their GEDs. And there was one family and actually, no, this young man went to the high school that I went to, but he was several years younger than me. And I ended up just connecting with him in the neighborhood because I had gone to school with him and we knew each other. And I remember he invited me to his family's house for a meal because I had done something for them. And so he just invited me over and they made me goat. So they were from Eritrea and the dish that they made me was just like a classic Eritrean meal made out of goat. And it was very gracious of them to make this huge meal for me. Like, I mean, they put so much work into it and I know that it cost them a lot of money. And, you know, I was vegan at the time, but I remember just sitting there and telling myself, like, I have to eat this meal. (laughs) There's, I mean, one for cultural sensitivity reasons, I can't deny this. Like that would just be so, it would come come off as extremely ungrateful. Um, And two, like, why shouldn't I just enjoy this beautiful moment of connection with people, right? And I think that's when it hit me where I was like, wow, I've been avoiding and missing out on so many opportunities of connection because food is one way that humans connect. It's not just about nourishment, right? And so that's one thing that crosses all cultures. It's food food brings us together. So I'm sitting there like, wow, all of these years I've just been missing out on these opportunities because I've been so focused on this diet, on this vegan diet, on this aspect of control on this. And in some ways too, I would say like getting wrapped up in this moral superiority nonsense of, of food as well. And sitting there and just looking at the family that had made this like beautiful meal for me, I decided to eat it, even though again, it was completely against my diet. And I think it was literally that moment where I realized I didn't need to be as strict. And I I didn't fully end the vegan diet at that point. 
but it was a moment where I, something clicked in my brain. <laughs> I was like, okay, this has gone too far. And again, I mean, if you think about it, all the meals that I, I didn't really fully embrace all those four years in, involved family meals, holidays, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, <laughs> you know, like right? precious moments. Yeah. Precious moments with family members, like those moments you can't get back. And I'm not going to look and shame myself for my process, but I do think it's important to acknowledge the reality that I did miss out on moments that I'll never get back. And that's something that I'll never forget. Um, Mm -hmm. And something that I'll share with people when I talk about this journey, because there are so many more important things in life that later on you start to realize. Uh, Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that was the start of my, of my recovery, I would say. And then moving to Morocco, uh, really, I think, jump-started the recovery. So I, um, or at least continued it. So when I moved to Morocco, I was still technically mainly vegan. So then I transitioned from being strict vegan to then being vegan during the week, mm-hmm. <laughs> like Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. And yes, it was a long journey. So technically, mm-hmm. I was strict vegan for four years. And then I was a fake vegan. I, I call myself fake <laughs> vegan for another like a year and a half to two years. Like this is a long mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. And so when I was in Morocco, Monday through Friday, I was vegan. And then Saturday and Sunday, or, oh no, including Friday, because in uh, Friday they have couscous usually it's a tradition you have couscous every Friday and so then I would eat a couscous with a family or you know one of my students or friends or whatever and so Friday Saturday Sunday I wasn't vegan but again it's this again this weird control so I had a schedule <laughs> it's like okay <laughs> on these days I'm still vegan I'm still like sticking to my diet and then on these days I can you know enjoy life and that again was still very restrictive and still it was all about control and autonomy and so I think really it wasn't until law school when I when I came back no the year before law school yeah it was one one year that I had uh, unfortunately my dad passed away while I was abroad on my Fulbright grant um, and I think that might have played a role in my recovery as well, just starting to really realize that I needed to take care of myself. Um, but when I moved back to live with my mom for a year before law school, I finally started just learning more about mindful eating, I would say, and um, really just being mindful about what I put in my body, not necessarily um, restriction-wise, but more so, you know, Am am I eating to nourish myself holistically, right? Am I eating Mm -hmm. to enjoy a meal with friends or family? Am I eating um, because I'm hungry? Am I, you know, there's so many reasons to eat. It's not just about proper nourishment. And so I think I started to be more mindful about that and really stopped the vegan nonsense and incorporated more holistic approach to how I was eating, when I was eating, what I was eating. Um, But yeah, it was a long journey. And interestingly enough, therapy didn't play a role I didn't do, I didn't do therapy for my food restriction. I Mm -hmm. started therapy to deal with the trauma that I experienced in that relationship that I mentioned, Mm -hmm. but I think they go hand in hand. And so I think, I think that, um, yeah, I kind of jumped the gun talking about therapy here, but I do, I do think that all the while I was going through this transformation personally, 
my food habits, you know, kind of tracked that. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. No, um, so as I, as I began, yeah, as I began <laughs> to sort of come into myself and into my healing from this trauma, I, the way that I engaged in the world changed in that, and that, that went hand in hand with, um, you know, how I ate and like my need for control over what I ate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like when, for me at least, and for a lot of people who I connect with on social media, they mm-hmm. say like, it's so intense when you start to um, work through your trauma and your life and work mm-hmm. through your eating issues, which is one coping mechanism of dealing with stuff. But it's yeah. just like, it feels like it's almost all at once. Cause it kind of is, and it's like a mm-hmm. big deal. So when people are like, I'm really struggling, I'm like, well, that's just mm-hmm. a part of it. You know, you have to yeah. acknowledge that that is it. Like you have yes. to almost feel really crappy. And then mm-hmm. you start to slowly kind of like, once you uncover yep. things, it starts to, but it's, a, it's a long process. And mm-hmm it's one that takes a lot of strength, almost more strength than just coping, almost more strength than just like, okay, I'm just going to have this like strict vegan lifestyle and eating disorder or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I have a couple questions that I've been thinking of and I want to ask you um, while you were speaking. So what about, like you said, you were studying anthropology and cultural studies Mm -hmm. what was in your mind when you were like learning about food within other cultures? Like, was it just Mm -hmm. sort of like, this is not, this doesn't apply to me or like, what, Mm -hmm. what was your process there? That's a great question. I think I always knew. And so that's kind of why I always go back to that story of the family making me food, because I always knew how important food was in cultures. Like I Mm -hmm. always knew that even when I was vegan. And I think yeah, I would say there was a little bit of cognitive dissonance there because I knew cognitively that I was I wasn't treating food holistically in the way that in the way that I think we do as humans in culture and society. I was treating food again as a tool for control. And I think I always knew that, but you know when you 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 sort of know something but you don't want to admit it so I think I was just in denial Mm -hmm. and instead um, while I was learning about different cultures I mean and I will say one thing is I did take a class on food which might have even played a bigger role now that I'm thinking about it I took an anthropology class on food and it was called the anthropology of food and learned a lot of amazing things in that class and at the same time I think learned some things that you know it went hand in hand with that obsession um sort of with the food industry and you, you were completely right on the years because I started college in 2011. Mm-hmm. I took this class, I think in 2012 and it was like completely, I mean, it was extreme. Like we watched so many movies and films about the food industry. And of course, like a lot of them were coming from probably very true places, but it was just the, the sensationalism of the class I felt, I remember vividly sitting down in that class and saying, you know what, like, I'm really glad I'm vegan because what we were watching was just so disturbing. (laughs) You know, everybody was cringing in the class. Like it was really, you know, about the factories and like the dairy industry, the meat packing industry. And so I think being in that class might've even triggered for me uh, a little bit of a, you know, desire to remain in that 
in control of what I was eating and in control of my life because at least I wasn't consuming these nasty products, right? I wasn't mm-hmm. cons- participating in that industry. Um, so I will say that one part of my anthropology education probably didn't necessarily help. But the the other classes, I do think, yeah, I think I always felt as though there was something off with my relation. I always knew there was something off with my relationship with food. Um, but I didn't necessarily, I wasn't at the point of accepting it yet. I was still mm-hmm. in denial and I just saw it as, you know, I'm just being healthy and it's just my choice and this is how I want to live my life. So yeah, yeah if that makes, I don't know if that answers No, that question, does. But... That answers my question. It, it answers my question a lot because you were saying, you know, I'm, you're really passionate about, about being in school and about learning and about, mm-hmm. so I was, I definitely relate to you in that like, okay, I can learn I can learn about something and I can have my own sort of like view mm-hmm. on it and it doesn't like mm-hmm. necessarily apply to me or something, you know? Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I think it's, you know, personally, I was not able, I'm not a vegan and I don't think I will be a vegan. Mm-hmm. I don't want to ever say never say never or whatever, but like, I don't think I will. Um, mm-hmm. especially like people ask me a lot, do you think it's okay to be a vegan? And I'm like, if you have a history with a bad relationship mm-hmm. with food or your body, I think mm-hmm. it's a really, really, really slippery slope. You know, I, I do think yes. there are people who I'm sure could be vegan and they could do it for all of the right reasons and they could have mm-hmm. 100% balance. But I, I do think that's really important not to do something just because you see other people doing it and you, mm-hmm. or if you like want to be vegan instead of having your eating disorder, you know, classic eating disorder behaviors, oh, I'm going to be vegan instead. I think it's a really slippery slope. I just want to add that in there because, you know, yes. if anyone's listening. No, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's extremely so, restrictive diet. Like I don't, I looking back at it, I can definitely see that. And I, and I do think part of you know, what I didn't bring up here is I do think, although the root of my issues, I would point to trauma, right? But I do think I did have body image issues as well, especially playing volleyball and going to a predominantly white school. My body always looked differently than, than my mm-hmm. teammates. I was always a little more curvier. And I think that played a role in like how I saw myself and what I ate. And I would always, you know, I would blame what I ate again, compared to these rich white girls whose parents made them, you know, all these like wholesome quinoa, whatever lunches, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like I would compare myself and, and I would look at myself and, and think, you know, yeah, I look this way because I don't eat as healthily as I should. And so I do think it, they go hand in hand. And I think mm, very few people admit that. I think a lot of people, um, you know, overlook the fact that veganism is in many ways still tied to diet culture. And so a lot of people be like, oh, I need to lose weight. So I'm going to go vegan. And mm-hmm. it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of people over, overlook that. So I do think that was a good plug, a good reminder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just imagine you were doing the best you could. You were just like, and, you know, in high school, you were just <clears throat> looking around and just taking in mm-hmm. what you thought was true. And yeah. no one, no one told you, you know, no, mm-hmm. nobody guided you in that way. So talk a little bit about therapy and about your um, relationship. Do you have any like practical ways you can give 
my audience or things that might help them to seek out therapy if they're kind of like on the edge of going? For sure, for sure. And actually my journey with therapy is very, well, I wouldn't say unique, but I do think it's, I always like to share it with people because I think people assume therapy is kind of like this linear process and also that it's sort of, I guess, that there's only one form of therapy even. And for me, I would say my first form of therapy that I ever explored was self-soothing, right? Self-soothing, self-soothing therapy. And so I started doing yoga and meditation and those literally saved me. Like I can't, I actually can't emphasize enough how much yoga I think guided me out of that relationship. Like I literally cannot. (laughs) And it's, and so I always say that first and foremost, I didn't start processing this relationship through therapy until very recently. And the relationship ended, I think seven years ago at this point, I'm not even counting anymore. (laughs) So long ago, but um, yeah, I just want to put that out there first. I remember when I was in college, I would had one really close friend and we were both going through it in different ways and we would get up multiple times a week. And this was, I don't know if they still do this, but back in the day, each yoga studio had like 30 days unlimited kind of. So you would mm-hmm. get the pat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we literally went, I think to like, it must've been like five, at least five different yoga studios around Atlanta and just same, like, same, did take the 30 advantage. Days, right. <laughs> exactly. Did the 30 days. And so we would, we would get up almost every day, Monday through Friday for 6am hot yoga. And mm. I am not a morning person. I'm not, <laughs> I literally, I am not a morning person, but like I would get up for yoga. I would literally get up for that five forty-five. I would roll out of bed and we would go and get there by 6.15 and do like a hot yoga session for 45 minutes. And like that literally was my therapy. And again, I think that was a life saving form of therapy for me. So I just want to put that out there first and foremost, that therapy can start, can be many different things and it can start any way that makes the most sense for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that note though, I will say that formal professional therapy for me I learned has to be body focused. So somatic focused. And that makes sense, right? Because I found healing through yoga, through engaging with my body. Right. And so when I started talk therapy, it's not that it wasn't helpful. It just didn't really take me all the way where I needed to go. And I potentially, because I do think I've talked things out a lot with people in my life already, but also potentially because a lot of my trauma, um, I think did show up in my body somatically, I've learned that I need a somatic therapist. And so that's, that's what I'm working on, who I'm working with right now. And I've, I've had a couple different ones and there are different forms of somatic therapy, but the idea is that you kind of work with the body. And so there are different ways to do this. Um, sometimes you can do like trauma release exercises in the body. Sometimes you'll work and do um, rapid eye movement um, techniques as well for trauma processing. And I think I say this to say again, that therapy is different for everyone. And just because you might not have had the most transformative experience or even a positive experience with one therapist or one form of therapy, doesn't mean that 
different forms of therapy won't work for you. And um, yeah, just be open, just be open and curious. And I, it took me years to find a form of therapy that I love. And at this point, I'm in um, therapy with a transpersonal therapist. And that is, for those who don't know, it's kind of spirituality. Yeah, so it's kind of, it's a very holistic form of therapy and it's um, spirituality based. And so, um, but but my therapist also does some somatic work as well. So um, she kind of does both, but transpersonal therapy is focused on sort of the development of the spiritual self. And so we do like dream interpretation wow. and just, yeah. So if I have a dream um, and I have very vivid dreams. Me too. So I'm sometimes, so curious yeah. about this. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I would totally recommend looking into transpersonal um, therapy, even if just for dream work, because yeah, we, I would, I wouldn't even call it dream interpretation. Actually, it's really dream work. Uh-huh. And so just to give you an example of one session that I did, um, in the new year, I went through a breakup and I had this dream where my ex was like, he just showed up at my apartment in London and it was just very, just a very odd dream. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we, we literally went into the dream. So it was kind of like a meditation and she guided me to place myself in my dream and live out the dream wow. for about 20 minutes. Yeah. And so, and for example, she had me like stare into his eyes and mm. you know say some things that I needed to say, or she had me again, literally place myself there by just like visualizing everything around me in that dream so that I could actually, you know, return to that place and process it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's not, that is a very different form of therapy mm-hmm. than sitting across a table and speaking to someone. Right. And yeah. it works for me and it, but it took me, you know, seven years to get here. <laughs> right. So it's <laughs> like, you, you never know what's going to work for you. Um, but I promise at some point you'll find something that does and it makes the journey worth it because the transformation that I've been experiencing has just been mind blowing. And I'm, I'm very happy. That's I I'm fascinated because I also have always had very vivid dreams. And I do think that like, I'll try, like sometimes my dreams, like they carry with me for like days and it's like not pleasant, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like a yep. nice stream where I'm like, Oh, I mm-hmm. was swimming in the yes. ocean. It's like, yeah, bizarre exactly. and like weird. Yes. Like, why is this person in my mm-hmm. brain? Why am I like having this mm-hmm. contact with this person? And, yeah. um, so sometimes I'll wake up and I'll tell Rio, my husband, I'm like, can I tell you about my dream? Cause I like literally need to get it out of my body and mm-hmm. my brain, but it almost like, mm-hmm. isn't enough. Cause I do feel like yeah. I don't have closure because when you wake mm-hmm. up, you're like, yep. what's going mm-hmm. on, you know? So that's really yeah. interesting. What about somatic therapy? Like, can you give me, mm-hmm. like, does the therapist guide you through just like different mm-hmm. movements or exercises? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what normally happens. Um, so for example, there's one exercise that I did with a somatic therapist where um, I'm trying to see if I can describe it, but it's basically you kind of exhaust your quad muscles. So um, you could even look it up actually, if you type, you know, for your listeners, if you t- if you mm-hmm. type in trauma, trauma release exercise, you'll probably find the, what I'm, the one that I'm talking about, but it's basically an exercise where you kind of like tire out your leg muscles to the point where they start to shake. Mm-hmm. And the research behind it is that like certain animals, like I think they use lions as an example. Um, when processing a traumatic event, they literally shake and tremble. So there's like a trembling that happens in most animals, I think. 
And um, the, the scientists who you know, have worked on this theory believe that the shaking and the trembling actually does something to your body that, or to these animals' bodies that prevents them from experiencing PTSD. Mm. And so the idea is that, is that if humans also sort of re go through these trembling processes regularly, we are able to process more holistically any traumatic events that we might have in, you know, resting in our brains or our bodies. And um, that's sort of the idea behind it. So basically you might have a therapist sort of walk you through a trauma release exercise for about 30 minutes. Right. And you Mm -hmm. kind of just do that. And then you might process for a little bit afterwards, but the, the heavy lift is on the body. Another example, again, is the uh, rapid eye movement. I always get the acronym wrong, like EDMR or EMDR. I literally can never remember. I think it's the second one you said, but I'm actually not sure. (laughs) I'm just like, yeah. EDM, like I'm like that's like what yeah, I'm thinking of, which is exactly not <laughs> exactly. Either way, if you type it in, either way it'll come up. So, mm-hmm. so um, yeah, and that's actually hilariously I should know the acronym, but that's I'm doing that right now with my transpersonal therapist. She's doing somatic work with me, and that's also supposed to be another just trauma processing bodily mm-hmm. um, technique that you can use. But I do think there, yeah, there's just a lot in you know, that we can do with the body and we're learning more and more every day. So I think, and breath work is another great tool, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the somatic part of therapy for me is just, it kind of was the missing part of the puzzle because I, you know, I had already done a little bit of talk therapy. Um, I tried a few different things and I think for me, the body is what I really needed to focus on. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. That's cool. I, I really appreciate you for sharing. I honestly, I do have a, I guess I have a pretty close minded view about therapy too, because I didn't even know about either of those options. Cause I feel like when you mm-hmm. Google find a therapist near me, like it just takes you to like psychology today. And then you just are yes. really limited and, and not mm-hmm. that psychology today is bad or talk therapy is bad or anything, but I do appreciate you for bringing that up that there's always like other therapy is meant to be you know, inclusive. And so if you're not getting yeah. what you need through CBT or whatever, mm-hmm. don't give up because there's definitely something for you. I'll have to look into those because I'm really fascinated by the dream stuff. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to talk about is um, meditation because you lead meditation classes, I think twice a week, right? Yep. Twice a week. Plus like sometimes on your, um, IGTV and stuff like that you do as well. Um, and I really, really enjoyed going to one. I certainly am going to go to more. I really needed it. It was 30 minutes, but it flew by. I was like, wow, that was like amazing that that was 30 minutes because I was so in it. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, tell me about your journey with meditation and like why it's important to you and, yeah, just like about how you practice it now and how you teach it now and just your whole journey with that. Yes, definitely. So as I mentioned, I sort of I started yoga and meditation on my own in college. It was kind of, um, I literally think I sought it out mm-hmm. because I needed it. Um, and so it's always been a personal journey for me. And I taught myself many things in, in that way, right? I've, obviously, I took classes, but I think I I really taught myself how to embrace these practices for myself. And I found ways to make 
them work for me. And I think that's honestly the core of why I teach because I, I do think meditation itself can be really daunting outside looking in because again, we have this idea that there's one way to meditate or that there's a perfect way to meditate. And at the end of the day, meditation is very personal. Like you can create your own meditation practice and you can, you know, teach yourself how to meditate. And because of all these industries, right? I think that gets lost and people think you have to go to a training or you have to go to a retreat and, you know, take a class, but that's not true. Um, Prayer is meditation. People meditate all day, you know, around the world in different forms. So I just want to put that out there first and foremost. Um, But for me, my journey, I actually did take one formal class on meditation uh, in college and I went to Emory uh, in Atlanta and it was technically taught by the Dalai Lama, but he only came to our class once. <laughs> and it was so it was taught by another. Yeah, it was t- it was really taught by a professor at the at, at um, Emory and I guess their school of theology, Candler. But technically, it was in partnership with the Dalai Lama's Institute Dharmasala in India. And it was really interesting because it was a class that was cross-listed um, between religion and neuroscience. And technically we were learning about kind of like the scientific benefits of meditation. So that was an interesting class. And I think it deepened my interest in the practice personally. And again, I think from there, obviously then I had a little bit of instruction and I, I, I felt comfortable in, in what I had learned. And then again, I kind of took things on my own. And now, fast forward to where I am now teaching meditation, breath work, and and yoga as well. I think my goal, again, is to make it as accessible as possible and to show that even two minutes of silent breath is meditation. 30 seconds of silent breath is Mm -hmm. meditation. You know, one, one deep cleansing breath counts. And so I think allowing people to enter and meet themselves wherever they are is really my goal. And that's why I teach it because I've seen how it has impacted my life. And again, I'm, I don't even, I think some people would assume that I meditate for like an hour a day. That's not true. I wish ideally I would. (laughs) Um, But I mean, there are days where all I do um, is five minutes of box breathing. um, And that still feels sacred to me. Because mm-hmm. taking the time to sit down and just breathe and just be with myself and, and you know, not let anything, whether it be work, family matters, side hustle, you know, whatever, not let anything get in between me and myself, even mm-hmm. if it's, you know, even if it's only for five minutes, I think is just so sacred. And so it's that act that I'm really concerned with, like helping people realize in their own lives, because um, yeah, I think that's beautiful and it can be life-changing mm-hmm. again, even if it's only, even if it's only one breath, if you take that one breath and you don't let anything get in between you and yourself for that one breath, like that's still a transformative experience. So yeah, that's, that's a little bit about me and my, and my practice personally and, and why I teach right now. Um, I just believe that so much can be healed through the body and breath work and meditation are can be an accessible way to start. Mm-hmm. Just one more question. What would you say mm-hmm. to somebody who's like, I 
have tried meditating and it's, I don't like it. And like, I don't know where to start because you just sort of said, you know, we can be whatever you want it to be. So what are like Mm -hmm. very, very, very basic things that somebody could do. That's like almost like turned off when it comes to meditating from past experiences or whatever, like what can they do tomorrow or, or this week or something like that? Yeah. Um, a few, a few things. So one, um, if you like nice, pleasant smells, grab an essential oil and take, you know, put a few drops into the palm of your hand, maybe lavender oil, deep breath in through the nose, breathing that oil in from your hand and then a deep sigh out the mouth Do that about five times. Um, and there you go. That's cleansing breath. Mm. That's a beautiful way to, to mm-hmm. quote unquote meditate. Um, I think perhaps doing box breathing. That's one thing that I do on my Instagram um, box it. breathing to your favorite song, find your favorite song and close your eyes and just do some box breathing. Or even if you don't want to box breathe, just breathe consciously to that song. You know, mm-hmm. I think there are so many ways that you can meditate that don't fit the quote unquote conventional um practice but Mm -hmm. if they work for you they work for you um so those are two tips I think let me think of a third one um Mm -hmm. oh yeah another one if you like baths take a bath and you know set a timer and just for one minute take deep breaths in and out and feel put your hand on your belly and feel your belly rise and fall with each breath and you've meditated so love it I love that I love that I love box breathing. I've been so into it. I'm actually teaching. Um, I'm in like an eating disorder recovery group. I'm a panelist and I'm doing a Facebook live for the group and doing a little box breathing. Cause I think it's so helpful for so many things and you can do it anywhere, but also it's, I think because my month is like all about facing your fears, specifically fear mm-hmm. foods and food rules. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, do mm-hmm. some box breathing, like before you challenge a food, because it really just like mm-hmm. grounds you so much and just takes you. Yes. Yeah. I love it. Those are great tips. It's so too. grounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'll let you know if I have any more, but those okay. are the three. Cool. That I have for now. Cool. Mm-hmm. And um, you teach classes, you said Monday and Saturday, right? Yes. I teach with frequency mind at 6 15 eastern time on mondays and then i teach with the Nolaverse on mondays as well that'll be at 5 30 eastern time and then um 10 in the morning on saturdays eastern time mm-hmm. and people can go to your instagram which i'll leave down below and they can click the link in your bio and sign up there and are they both donation based or is just one of them um the Nolaverse is donation based and then mm-hmm. frequency mind I think it's trial. There's a free, not a free trial, a $1 trial. And then it's um, a subscription-based plan, I believe. Okay, cool. Amazing. I hope everyone checks it out. If they're interested in learning meditation from you, like I said, it's wonderful. And um, Monday is a good day for me because I'm always stressed on Mondays. Literally, I pulled up to your meditation last Monday or two Mondays ago. And I was like, She's like, how is everyone feeling? Like checking in. I was like, I'm stressed. <laughs> but yes, yes. afterwards I felt Feel so much better. And it's, it's at a great time too. It like breaks up your day really well. And mm-hmm. so highly recommend checking, checking her out because it's the best. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, yeah. I really learned a lot from you and I think my audience did too. no thank you so much it was truly a pleasure and an honor and um, I hope you take care okay that is it for this episode I love Samantha she's so wonderful be sure to give her a follow and 
Um, yeah, I really, really loved talking to her. So if you like this episode, please don't forget to leave me a rating and a review if you would like. It really, 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 really supports me and I really appreciate it. And they're my favorite little things to read. So thank you so, so much for tuning in and I will see you in the next episode. Bye everyone.